Before we begin this episode of Real Tall Tales, we'd like to issue a content warning. The following episode includes talk of gun violence, war crimes, and depiction of graphic violence. You're listening to Real Tall Tales. When Derek Kayongo was 10, he found himself rounded up by the hands of a military firing squad with his family and was forced to watch as his neighbors were randomly selected and killed. All for a crime they didn't do. He escaped, and now he's a CEO. We are your hosts. I'm Cassie Young. And I'm Munir McJohnny, and I am so excited to have my friend Derek with us today. He is a human rights advocate, environmental sustainability and global health expert, an international speaker, and a fashionista. <laughs> I still don't know anyone who dresses as well as he does. You said fashionista, and I was like, okay. And then when I saw him walking, I was like, oh, yep, okay. He's he is a fashionista, yeah. You look like you're ready for a red carpet. Yeah. <laughs> always. It's yeah. He's always like that. And he has literally gone from a civil war in Uganda, a refugee in Kenya, to the past CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and founder of the Global Soap Project, which recycles used hotel soap and redistributes it to impoverished populations to help fight diseases and saves thousands of lives around the world. This won him the coveted title of a CNN hero. Mm. Just an incredible journey. But we want to really start from the beginning of this firing squad and the impact that that must have had to see something like that at such a young age. First of all, let me say thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate being here. It was a very early morning uh, when we had a loud bang on the door of our flat. My father looks out of the window and sees a soldier and he's wielding an AK-47. And in what is a, a very, very crass voice, this reprobate soldier yells up in Swahili, which is an amalgam of Bantu languages and Arabic. Mm. And he says, get out of your apartments right now. And he was so rude and so mean. So my father looks at him and says, you know what, we, let's get out of the apartment because if he comes in, he might... Right, just make it us. worse, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we get out of the apartment and he holds us off to this roundabout station where we find this amazing scene. The whole village is actually right there before us. And as I walk into that scene, I see three of my playmates, Masko, Hassan, and Kukuli, with their parents. And their tears are rolling down their faces, literally. And for me, that marks the beginning of what was an, a horrible day for a 10-year-old. In effect, this man accuses us of a crime, of killing two soldiers, and he didn't know who had committed the crime. So what he, his idea of justice was going to be was that he was going to start killing us off one by one until we told who actually committed mm. the crime. Until someone stepped up. Yeah. And um, this is shocking, not just for a child, but for everybody, you know, for adults and everybody. And you could hear the gasps of fear as he accuses us of the crime and then lets us know we're going to have a firing squad, literally. So he picks up the first four people at random and asks the question and to no avail, shoots all of them at once. And to hear those gunshots was not only just frightening, but also it just starts to invite this idea of, Really, what the heck? What kind of law enforcement are you right. who doesn't even know your job? And the best way to do your job is to just execute people. At random. At random. At random. So the cacophony that ensues after that as mothers are holding on to their children and the disorganization is just a stumbling. And he yells out very rudely again with a megaphone, everybody be quiet, stop it. We'll kill it, you know, shoots gunshots in the air. And, you know, we stop and we are quiet. And he says, we're going to do this all day until you tell me what happened last night. So he picks up another four. And as he points at these people, neighbors had to point at each other and say, no, he picked you. Can you imagine 
your neighbor offering you up knowing you're going to be executed. Because the alternative is... Is you. Yeah. And that's what makes me really curious about human beings. When we are backed up behind the wall, we do remarkable things. So those four picked up, brought up to the front, and those four gunshots rang out again. That was eight. So at that point, I think there's a punctuation. This young man raises his hand at the very back and yells out, I did it, I did it. And as we look at him, you can tell he's actually a visitor on the village. So it wasn't even somebody from who was a neighbor. It was yeah. an outsider. And you could tell he was actually lying. He was offering himself. Wow. Oh, really? Yes. The ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we talk about sacrifices all the time, but I think we don't understand what sacrifice can mean when you're actually putting your life on the line. But when somebody gives you their kidney or they gives you their lung or something like that, that's serious yeah. stuff. And in this case, he's brought up to the front and they have a little bit of banter. And I closed my eyes. I couldn't watch this anymore. And I had the gunshot. He blew his brains out. At which point he had the audacity to say to us, thank you for your cooperation. I hope this never happens again. That was my 10th year on this earth. That's how I lived it. I can't even imagine the lasting impression of not only having to experience something like that, but then seeing a total stranger make a sacrifice. Who knows Mm. if he was going to go all day? Who knows how many people that stranger actually saved if he didn't do it? And that's the value behind this. People, they're what I call investors in our lives. Mm. You know, people who invest in you. I see him as one of the biggest investors in my life. Because without him, I probably wouldn't be here. He saved it. Yeah. He saved that day. By giving his own. Mm Mm-hmm. And then after that, you became a refugee. Did you leave immediately from Uganda? No. So the war really had begun. Those of you who don't know Idi Amin, you should Google him. He's an incredible, crazy man. One of the top dictates in the world. But he then starts to destroy the country one beat at a time. Mm. And my parents at that point realized they're going to lose everything that they had built. They, They were teachers in the beginning, changed their lives around and became entrepreneurs. And my mother became a wedding gown seamstress and built the second kind of largest David's bridal in the country. Oh, and my wow. father, yeah, <laughs> which is why I, I dress very well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's not a that's brand what, I expected yeah, yeah. to hear about. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's why I dress better than Mania here. So. <laughs> <laughs> always. So fashion has always been in my realm of the ecosystem that I lived in. My mother loves fashion. So you don't walk out of the house with poor fashion. So she really built a good, she taught herself how to sew and became an incredible seamstress. And then my dad became a soap maker and built, you know, a printing press business. And they did very well. When the war begins, they lose everything. And my dad decides, I'm going to become part of the guerrilla movement to overthrow this bad government. My Which mother, is risky. Oh, yeah. So the second sacrifice I see is my dad going to fight in the war. He then moves us to Kenya to become refugees. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in Nairobi. And so the war begins. I don't see my dad for the next five years. Wow. Not once, not, not at all. Not at all. Well, I saw him once. He came back to just say hello. He smuggled himself back in and out. Oh, so he had to smuggle himself back into Uganda yeah. to fight the war. And then, ba- yeah. oh my God, just yeah. to see you. So the war ends and then I discover my dad had been a spy for almost 15 years, which is probably linked to that sin, the mm. firing squad. Oh, Wow. We'll talk about so, full circle. Yeah, so I realized that they had a hunch, the soldiers had a hunch that there was some guerrilla movement kind of activity on the village, of which my father belonged to. I didn't know that. 
Do you think the claim that there was a crime committed where two soldiers was murdered was a lot, like a ruse to get any guerrilla movement no, members the, to step out? There, there was really there a... There really was? There was really a two soldiers killed. But what we will never find out is whether my father will ever admit to whether he was part of right. the whole process. But now I'm grown, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you, know you can start putting two and you know, two so, together yeah, now. Yeah. If you're, you're a spy for 15 years, yeah. they, they come to our village and somebody dies at the village. I didn't wow. Know Something fishy there. That is really interesting. And so how long were you a refugee for? For about six years. The war, I think, was about six years long. So I spent my whole high school sort of teenage years in Nairobi. In Nairobi. Mm -hmm. So I know in one of your speeches you said, I didn't want to be called a refugee as a kid, Mm -hmm. but then I realized that would be my story. Yeah, I think we don't want to be called anything when it's bad. You know, if you're a cancer survivor, you don't want to be called a cancer survivor. If you are... You didn't want that to be your label. Yeah, you don't want that to be your label. But then you realize that these things that happen to us, these events that happen to us, actually have a message in those events. Mm. They are looking for a transporter, a communicator, who can actually bring the issue to the fore. So rather than run away from the label of um, from a refugee or a refugee, I realize that these so many people who are refugees in the world Mm -hmm. and have no voice. And here I am now in a country that has given me an opportunity to do something about it. Where am I going to muzzle that? So then I owned it. I totally owned it. It's hard to step into that and accept that label, but understand that it's not the one thing that defines you. It's Mm -hmm. just part of the many facets of you. Yeah, and the way to do that is to actually step into that role and own it and then showcase to everybody that you don't actually, when they say, when you say you're a former refugee, they don't really believe you. Mm. That means you've done a good job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've done so much good by owning it though. So you emigrated to the United States Mm -hmm. and how old were you when you came to America? Um, 19. 19? Uh, Going into 20. So I came to go to school. I got a scholarship to go to school and that's an incredible, so that's the third investor. You know, there's a gentleman that gave me a scholarship to go to school for undergrad and then graduate school. I end up at Tufts University in Boston and I got another scholarship for that. And for me, that was really telling of what happens when you don't give up on your life and stay the course and stay working hard because then opportunities are right around the corner. There are people waiting around the corner who are being spoken to by the universe about you so that if you hang in there long enough, those people show up. You're both looking for each other. You just have to find each other. You just have to find each other. So I usually tell myself every time I see some kind of trouble around the corner, I I know that there's an investor also around the corner. Also around the corner. Wow, what an optimistic way to look at these things too. So you were able to get out of Nairobi because Mm -hmm. of the scholarship that you had. Yes. And you had to leave your family behind, travel to the United States for the first time ever on your own. Yeah, but before that, so the war ends, my parents go back and then mm. I, re- I realized then that my dad was played a very, very big role in the war. He becomes the deputy director of our, like, CIA. Right. Of the country. Oh, wow. For then, Uganda. For Uganda. And I'm like, wow, dad, what were you doing? <laughs> 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 Just to appoint anybody who is that a former is teacher. Crazy. Yeah, and, and Idi Amin displaced thousands of people became refugees because of him and had to even leave all of Africa and couldn't even go to surrounding countries at that point. No, I mean, f- for those of you who don't know this, Idi Amin did three incredible things. Number one, he actually got rid of the Indian Ugandan community that had mm. been there for almost 70 to 100 years. Wow. They had been brought by the British to build the railway system. And he had this propaganda of hatred 
against foreigners or people who had been brought into Uganda against their will. Yeah. And they became yeah. Ugandans. He gave them 90 days to leave the country. Right. Yeah. After having been there for 100 years. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Somebody giving you 90 days to leave the country that you you know is home. You've got your home, your yeah. businesses, your family, your friends. Yeah. Everything is there, and you've got a 90-day eviction notice from life. It's not like moving apartments or even moving right. countries. You're talking about uprooting an entire culture and society. It's horrible. That was one event that he managed to pull off, and the world was aghast at this. Yeah. The second thing, then, he antagonized Israel. Mm-hmm. He hated Jews. He could not stand Jews. And when the Palestinians hijacked a French plane back in the day and took it to Algeria, it was a hot potato for them right. to hold. The Algerians could not hold the plane right, because right. they were under duress by the French or everybody. Guess who steps in mm. and offers to take the plane? Idi Amin. And the Israelis were smart. They said, okay, let Idi Amin take the plane because they knew that if he got the plane, they actually designed the airport. So they had the maps of the airport. Oh, wow. So they could actually come and pick up the plane. In fact, that's how Benjamin Netanyahu's brother dies. There's a movie out called uh, 90 Minutes at Entebbe. You should watch it. It details the whole story. So Idi Amin kills Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, the current prime minister of Israel. He's laid up in Uganda. That was the second thing that he did that was crazy. Then the third thing was the crime against his own people. He killed intellectuals. He killed the first archbishop of the country. So we're not talking about one-time sort of right, dictate. Yeah. We're talking about a full throttle yeah. reprobate. Yeah, he was brilliant in the way that he did things too. Oh, my goodness. A large part of my community was yeah. also uprooted because of this, you know, yeah. and, and went to different nations because either you left or you died. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ismaili community. Yeah. yeah, He didn't like other religions other than his. Right. So then he changed our calendar. Friday became a Sunday. Mm. Sunday became a working day. <laughs> just to kind of spite the, wow. So he just shifted the weekend back a yeah, day? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to cause confusion? Because Sunday is the day of Christ, yeah. right? And so mm-hmm. this changes things up because now you're working yeah. on the day that you're supposed to rest. Yeah. And it's your God-given day to kind of rest. And yeah. so he changed that up. Yeah. So he's his ego is at the point oh. where he's not even just killing the most intellectual and high-profile people, but he is literally taking on God, in a sense. Yeah. He was what I really call a disruptor. Yeah. <laughs> I, would say, I think that's a very mild term. <laughs> but um, when he gets kicked out of the country and he lives, we get new other leaders that are you know, disruptive, Milton Obote. But anyway, my parents go back and my dad becomes the deputy director of the CIA or what we call ESO back at home and then becomes a member of parliament appointed mm. by the president. Wow. And then he runs for office eventually, becomes a civilian and becomes a member of parliament for about yeah. 10 years. My mother then becomes a feminist, literally. She championed the all the Ugandan women that fought in the war. Not They were not doing bandages. They were not doing wow. Red Cross stuff. And what year is this, to put things this in perspective? 1980. Wow. You know, all the way into 86 is when the war goes on. But Idi Amin is deposed in 80. Right. We get out of the dictates. We depose those two, the abortions of this world. But women fought in that war, literally with guns and died as soldiers. And so my mother bands up with a group of other women and they said, you know, why don't we champion our rights as women mm. as equal partners? Because we fought in equal partnership. And so... They started what they call the Ministry of Women, which was in charge of making sure that gender rights were brought to the wow. fore. So out of that comes the first vice president woman, the Speaker of the House of Commons at home, of Parliament, rather. The first ambassador to the U.S. becomes a woman. And on and on, Parliament now, I think, is 
50 60 that is 50% women significantly wow. better than ours here in <laughs> yeah. many of the modern nations around the world. I think we need your mom to yeah. do some work over here. <laughs> so what that does for me, guys, is that it starts to mold into this notion, why am I here? Yeah. I'm in a home where the value set is contribution, mm. sacrifice, mm. dedication, courage. This idea that you don't give up on yourself, therefore you don't give up on the people around you. And therefore, you don't give up on your country. So for me, this is equal to John McCain. Yeah. Senator John McCain. I cried the whole time yeah. during his funeral. Yeah. Because that courage, his family, his whole family is courageous. Right, right. Absolutely. His grandfather, his father, him, his two. I mean, that's what I love to see in life. Well, yeah. by not giving up on those people, you in turn become investors in their lives. Correct. So it all brings it full circle back to the idea of... People have invested in your life, yeah. and now you're almost paying it forward by investing back. Yeah. And that's what we should do, the crisscross. Uh, and I think you've continued to do that, too, with the story. I'm interested in the story of the soap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting finding out that your father was, you said he was a soap, soap maker. maker. Yeah. That's how so, I learned how to make soap. Yeah. So uh, this is, like, your mother, you know, started the Ministry of Women. Your father became basically director of the CIA in your country. And now you are here and you became a CEO of the Center for Civil and Human Rights. But not only that, you started something from the ground up with hotel soap. Yeah, so I land in the U.S. and check into a hotel. And when I get into the hotel room, there are three bars of soap, facial soap, body soap, and hand-washing soap. I didn't know what the difference was. Honestly, I, I don't either. Yeah, it's just the label. Makes I mean, you feel better. I get the hair soap is different, <laughs> but the hand wash and the body wash, I think, is the same. No, I think it's Americans being bougie. Yes, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we don't want to use facial soap for a butt. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> We're the Americans. So you've, so you've just left your country, yeah. right, for the first time. You're yeah. about 20 years old, mm-hmm. and you're transported, yeah. really, in the world. Yeah. And you go from, you know, we barely have resources to now I'm sitting in a hotel room with fresh towels, <laughs> three bars of soap, not just one. Yeah. So how does that impact you? So I took the two bars and hid them because I figured I didn't have enough quid on me to buy soap right. every day. Yeah. So I, say, I figured, well, let me go ahead and save this for another day. And I get back that evening and they had actually replaced the bars of soap. And I thought to myself, you're kidding, right? Like, I can't afford this. Yeah. Anyway, okay, whatever. So for three days I was stealing soap and then it occurs to me they may actually be charging me ah for the soap so i take all the stolen soaps to give them back to the concierge and when i get to the concierge he's african-american and just elegant i had never seen african-americans before in my Mm. entire life out there okay i was dying to say yo what's up brother (laughs) 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 and so i go up to him and um say what's up brother he says what's up young man and he says can I help you? I said, you know, I have a secret for you. He says, what? He said, I've been stealing your soap. And he said, what? Like from housekeeping? I said, no, 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 you keep on bringing me soap. I can't afford it. Take it back to housekeeping and tell them not to charge me for it. He burst out laughing. I can only imagine because that's such a foreign. <laughs> so he's like, what? What do you mean you're confessing? We all do this. <laughs> so he said, no, no, it's part of the hotel bill, so don't worry about it. Which has to be mind-blowing, yeah. too, to yeah. come from somewhere that's such a commodity. And then here, not only are there several different types of soaps, but they're essentially free. Yeah, and if you're lucky, they even give you a toothpaste, mm-hmm. toothbrush. Just, who does that? Like, I was so excited to be in this country, man. <laughs> so then I realized that, okay, they have soap, good. But what happens to my partially used bar of soap? Whenever I go, you take everything and clean it out. What did you do with the partially used bar of soap? He says, we throw those out. And I said, What? So we throw those out. I said, I used it once. 
I said, this hotel or every hotel in the U.S. says every hotel in the U.S., it's federal law or something like that or some kind of law. We have to throw away the soap. Such a waste. And you don't think about it. It becomes such right. a part of the norm that it gets thrown out. But you only think about things sometimes in terms of your own sphere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay, you go to a hotel, they throw out the soap. No worries, but they're normal. doing it for every single room in that hotel and every hotel in that city and Correct. in the country. And it exponentially, the number of bars of soap that must be wasted. Yeah. So incredible. It adds up to what about 800 million bars of soap that are thrown annually. away annually. Annually, that's 2.6 million bars a day. 2.6 million. 2.6 million. Where do they even go? In your landfills. Yeah. Such, they just get thrown away. Such yeah. a waste because it's such a thing that could be recycled, which is, I think, yeah, and when what you, you realize. Yeah, and when you really think about it, we're talking about how we manage resources mm-hmm. as human beings in the grand scheme of things. Do you know how much it costs to make a bar of soap? The, no idea. The, just the raw materials you need. You know, you need fat, you need lye, you need mm. color, you need perfume. You know, when you put all those things together and aggregate them, to throw away 800 million bars of soap is really irresponsible. But we do that with food. We do that with so many things. And now we're worried about the finite nature of resources. Yeah. So I, the idea of recycling came to me because I saw kids get diarrhea because we didn't wash our hands when we ate food. I saw kids drop out of school. Girls dropped out of school because boys would make fun of them because of poor hygiene. Mm. And when you think about it, if you are, let's say, in Malawi, and half of the women are the population of the country, and they're dropping out of school because of, just through my prison, my little window, or because of poor hygiene, that goes directly to the per capita income of the country. The per capita income of Malawi is about $300. So how is a Malawian girl or a Malawian citizen going to compete ever with an American citizen whose per capita income is about $20,000. It goes back to everything. I it mean, goes even back to everything. gender equality. You yeah, can't participate yeah. if you're not getting the same education. education. Yeah. So when you think about it in an intellectual sense, the lack of access to resources is the principal reason why 6 billion people around mm. the world are not in the marketplace at all. They can't afford anything. And the very resources that we throw away. Yes. Not resources that don't exist, not resources that we have trouble getting because there's a finite number, but resources that we literally every single day take for granted and throw away. Correct. Well, well, honestly, I mean, if we're being blunt, America really is a country of waste. Oh, yeah. Everything is wasted. Even food, you mentioned earlier, is wasted. And that's a huge contributor to environmental problems. Food waste in landfills actually produces methane, which is even more dangerous than the carbon monoxide coming out of your car. And we overbuy, but we don't think twice about it because it's such abundance here. But when you break it down, you Mm -hmm. can really equate the throwing away of that bar of a soap is like throwing away a girl's education. Correct. I mean, sure, it's not a direct correlation, but if you can reuse that soap and get it to that girl to allow her to stay in schools because she's not being made fun of because of poor hygiene, it puts everything in such a different, it shifts the perspective. Which goes back to the key point. When you see a problem globally, do you sit down and complain about it? Because we have a lot of complainers. It's easy to complain. Or do you do something about it? And I think most people don't know where to start. Yeah. They look at it and they're like, yeah. it's a global issue. I'm one person. I can't really make a difference. But that's not true. Yeah. It's inaccurate because you are one person and you made a difference. One person uses a straw every day. And now we're talking mm-hmm. about straws all over the, all over the world. world. So one person can start a revolution 
just like you said, a revolution for throwing away soap and yeah. revolution to throwing away yeah. straws and throwing away food. You can set a revolution to not do that. And honestly, with access to social media, the access to the global community is so much better in the digital age yeah. that you really, running a Facebook ad, $5. I've seen um, Final Straw, which replaces plastic straws mm-hmm. with a metal one you yeah. carry around. I yeah. have one of those. Their ad campaigns. And the, a lot of these companies, there's Final Swab, which yeah. replaces cotton swabs with one final reusable one that you clean and reuse over and over again. And most of their marketing is online because it's the easiest way to contact people. So I think now back to your point, the days of sitting down and just complaining and not doing anything because you feel powerless. Well, you're not. And it's funny. Part of our problem has also become social media at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have this slacktivist culture. Correct. Right. It's the slacker activist yeah. where I'll post it on Facebook or I'll retweet and I'll share. And I feel like I've done my part. Exactly. And we're checking off the need that yeah. we all have as altruistic human beings to do good. We check it off because we're like, oh, you know, I wrote a post about it. I've got so many friends who are so riled up about the elections, but then they've never hosted. They don't know anyone. Right. And so I always encourage, let's not be slacktivists. Let's Correct. go do one thing. And that one thing can have that ripple effect of and change. The, the problem yeah. with that too, posting on social, it's not that you shouldn't share your thoughts online. Right. It's oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those platforms that, especially if your community is your friends, they're echo chambers. Correct. So a lot of the time you're preaching to the choir and they're not, it's not reaching the actual people that need to listen absolutely. and learn or maybe be exposed to new and different ideas so they can look at adapting their own thinking. Yeah. So what you guys are mentioning, therefore, is a very old American tradition. Americans are not people who, have, who are not known for acting. Right. We are just losing our puritanical approach to life. We're becoming slackers when we never used to be. I mean, when you go to the Amish culture in southern Mm. Ohio Ohio and Pennsylvania, these are people who actually act. They actually will act. We're out there doing something. So when I came to the U.S., I learned that Americans were very big on acting, Mm. getting out there and doing It's a country of entrepreneurs and innovators. And therefore, if I was going to survive in this country, my job was not come here and just say, you know, let me get my education, drive my little BMW and go to sleep. Right. Then I was losing out on this incredible innovation culture. The exciting thing about being in the U.S. is that this man, people are doing remarkable things. Yeah, absolutely. I want to be part of that action every day, (laughs) (laughs) you know. So I worry about those of us that don't really... And I'm not talking about wealth because some of us are very wealthy, some of us are very poor. But those of us who are action poor and therefore we're not involved in the highway and the speed of the highway that we call America. So because of that, I decided to recycle soap. I decided I'm going to recycle this thing. I'm going to figure it out. And the first thing people told me was the yak factor. Oh, man, yak. It's used soap. Dude, what are you thinking? I always had a stupid question I heard once, and it really made me think, is soap self-cleaning? Right. Because it's you use it to clean yourself, yeah. so the so, in theory yeah. it should be clean. The chemical in soap attaches to the germs yeah. and then attaches to water and washes right. off so, you. Yeah. So basically, the membrane, if you know your biology, germs have a membrane, an outside membrane that sticks on the skin. Yeah, and it's eats. like a magnet. Yeah, it's like a little thing. So what soap does, it, it makes it slippery. It can't really stick. Then you have antibiotic soap, which is really mm. supposed to keep. Because not all germs on your body are bad. Right. Right. So if you use antibiotic soap every day, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to kill a yeah. lot of good bacteria. Good bacteria, yeah. So the funny part about this idea is that we then figured out how to, to recycle the soap. And I tell people all the time, every business that you're in, everything that you do in life has a yak factor. Mine were germs. Yeah. But those of us who are successful at what we do is we spend time 
understanding the yak factor first. And then in understanding and educating yourself in the yak factor, the solution starts to appear. Most people look for solutions before they actually mm. understand the problem. So that's what I did is I spent time. It took me 10 years to build the, the Global Soap Project. 10 years. So how did you go from realizing that America has three different soaps for every body of your part body and <laughs> throws away a gazillion pieces yeah. to now an organization that has given out probably around 10 million bars of soap, you Correct. know, in its history in mm -hmm. 32 different countries. So yeah. how did you go from A to B? So the first thing I did, and which I recommend for everybody, is to first equip yourself. I was still new in the country. There's no way I knew how to build an organization in the U.S. And I didn't know what 501c3s were. I didn't know nonprofit work and building a board. So what do I need to equip myself to be able to then build and construct a robust entity? So I went to school, finished school. <laughs> <laughs> so, good education, yeah, get an education, as any immigrant will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you're nothing. If you're, as an immigrant, you're nothing yes. if you have no education. Like our parents are yes. so tough. You've got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. Absolutely. That's it. So I finished school and then I decided to work for NGOs, non-profit organizations, mm. to understand how they work. And I worked for Amnesty International as a South Regional Director, worked for Care International, those of you who know mm -hmm. about the care package. And then out of that, I started to do what I call power networking. Most people network. Networking is when you go to a networking event, you get a business card and they tear it up and throw yeah. it in the trash can. Power networking is you understand what you need and then you figure out who those people are that can give you what you need and you start going down the road of figuring out how to get to know them. Networking with a very specific purpose, not exactly. just to meet people yeah. and keep them in your Purposeful. back pocket. Yeah. But so I built a Rolodex of people that I knew were going to help me down the road. And after I did that, I then went to them. I was ready. I was prepped. I had all the tools of management, of leadership, of building boards, of capital, raising capital and all that stuff. I had all those tools. Then I said, now it's time. Let's go. And about 10 years ago, I uh, opened up the first mission, the Intercontinental Hotel in Bucket here in Atlanta, gave me my first bars of soap. And I didn't know how much volume we were talking about. So I had a little BMW. And I thought, you know, I'll pick up yeah. a bag. Fill it up in the trunk, yeah. Put it in the trunk. The first day they called me was two weeks after I had told them to collect the soap. And I went to pick up the soap. It was one ton of soap. <gasps> one ton in one two ton weeks? in two weeks. From one hotel. From wow. One hotel. Wow. Talk about the cliche paradigm shifts. I shifted the paradigm that day. Yeah, you had to really realize. Got rid of my BMW, <laughs> got a Ford truck. Yeah. Because <laughs> then if sometimes we ask for things and when they appear, mm. we're not ready for them. And hearing about numbers of bars of soap is not the same as really understanding the yeah. volume in terms of weight. And that really had to, you had to realize what impact these soaps could actually have when you got that oh much goodness. of it. Yeah, but the fear of, yeah. am I really going to be able to do this? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and where am I going to put all this right. soap if what I can What the heck was I thinking? So hotels are busy at different times of the year. Right. So that was not the busy time of the year. And I got one ton. In two weeks. In two weeks. When the busy season began, I was getting a ton every three days. Wow. Every three days. Every three days. Let that sink in. One ton of soap every, every three, three days. days. Used soap. That's what they were throwing away every week. Now, was that still from one hotel or yeah. from multiple? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was one hotel. When I got all the hotels in Atlanta to start to give me soap... It was ridiculous. Where did you even store it? I had a wonderful company by a guy called Mims who did real estate and gave me a warehouse to put the soap in. And within a month, this was bad. I, I was like, this is really bad. We are talking Atlanta. We haven't talked about Las Vegas. 
Orlando. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Vegas is where the real soap is. Yeah. Did you <laughs> launch in all these cities at the same time? No, no, or no, no, stagger no, 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 no. You have to graduate to these things. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I could see yeah. Las Vegas being the king of wasted oh. soap. So it took me about a year and a half to get my act together to really do the recycling process properly to learn how to do it properly. So on a high level, yeah. what do you wash the soap and then reuse it or do you melt it all down? No, no, and... no, no. So that's what I first did. Yeah. But that's not how to do it because how much water are you going to use right. washing 800 million bars of soap? Right. And how much heat are you going to use heating up that soap? Right. It's too expensive as a utility cost. So in terms of business, that did not make sense. Right. It makes more sense to buy new soap. Yeah, because yeah. that, yeah, that, that bar of soap would be very expensive. Right. So what I did, I figured out that actually the best way to do this is to understand what are we talking We're talking about germs mm-hmm. on the soap. How do you kill the germs? And it came to me that actually suffocation was the best way to do it. So we peeled the soap, ground the soap. The first layer we peeled off that you used in your hotel room. How do you peel it off? We, I had the largest collection of potato peelers in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every volunteer that came to work with me, the first thing I told you, I want to come volunteer. Good. Bring a potato peeler. I remember at one point we were talking in the past and you said finding simple solutions to big problems, right? It's Occam's razor. Correct. Try to get rid of all these complicated things and just boil it down. I always have appreciated that, you know, you've applied Occam's razor to almost everything that you've done is let's find the simple solution to this. It's germs. Let's suffocate them. Yeah. And, and I think brilliant. that most people spend a lot of time answering questions using the imagination of price mm. and cost. It's going to cost a billion dollars to do something. Really? Come on. It's going to cost one dollar is where I begin. Wow. I don't ever start with the billion. I begin with what can I Smart. do in the most? First step. I'm a minimalist in thought and in deed. So once we figured out you can actually peel it, grind it, then ziplock it and take the air out of the bag and create a vacuum suffocation was the cheapest model we had and before you knew it i took the soap to the lab after that first experiment of suffocation we tested the soap for 12 pathogens zero so it was highly effective so i kept that secret to myself because people had tried to you know recycle soap for a long time but the cost was the issue so that's how i became the sudden hero that you hear (laughs) we were able to then move and give soap to refugee camps back home, you know, homeless shelters here in the U.S. And people ask me, how would they accept soap in the U.S.? And the answer is very simple. Guess what the answer is? What? About 20% of the soap we collected was still in the wraps. Wow. They were throwing away soap in the wrappers? New soap. That, to me, makes no sense. Because then at at that point, too, the hotel is losing out on it. Yeah. It must be some federal hygiene law or something. When I tell you how wasteful we are, I'm telling you we do it on several levels. 20% of the soap we got was brand new. That's tons and tons of soap. Yeah. Unused, Unused. Still in the wrapper. Perfectly good. And they're throwing it away. So that soap I give to the homeless shelters, straight up. Because it's perfectly packaged. Can you imagine? That blows my mind. So can people still help with this? Do you need volunteers? Yeah, so we were acquired by a company in Orlando called Clean the World that now runs the whole thing. So if you go to Clean the World's website, you will see a tab that says volunteer. If you're a hotel, you can see the tab that says hotels. It walks you through the whole process of how to be a member of the recycling club that they have. For volunteers, they have factories in Vegas and in Orlando, where you can actually go and do the... We have a lot of spring breakers mm, who go, go to there. Vegas and then go... Uh, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's a yeah. good two-for-one deal. Yeah. yeah, Spring break to Vegas, yeah. but also for good. 
Yeah, wash away the sins. Yeah. <laughs> Literally with soap. <laughs> Sinful soap of Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So, you know, you mentioned this briefly. So when you won the CNN Hero, mm-hmm. right, you got to go up and speak. And I've heard that mm-hmm. several times. Mm-hmm. In the end, you talk about how, you know, the soap doesn't just mean life, but it means hope yes. for people, right? Why is that so important? Because I think that for a kid who came from a background that was mainly wealthy, my parents were well-to-do, and then to see them lose everything and face a firing squad and become a refugee and just have this tumultuous life, it's easy to lose hope. Mm. And I know that hope is a soft science, as I call it, but it's very, very key in survival. You talk to people who survived the Holocaust, it was really hope. That got them through it. If you talk to Mandela, if he's still alive, that jailing sentence Mm. of 26 years, his hope was that that silence in jail was giving to people this notion that even though I'm in jail, I'm standing for something important. That brings hope to people all over the world. So this Gandhian approach and the Martin Luther King approach of let's remain hopeful is why societies are cleansed of their sins. And so for me, this idea of bringing that soap back to Africa and back to Latin America, it means that those kids that see me bringing that soap to a refugee camp and for me to tell them I was once a refugee, now I'm bringing you something back. Guess what? Hang in there. Yeah. So for me, the hope symbol has a lot to do with you going out there and beating the odds so that those people who are still caught in the jaws of this problem or whatever issue that they're caught in, can look at you as somebody they can say, ah, if Derek can make it, I can make it too. too. And if I show them and teach them how I made it, how I survived it, then that hope is what creates survivors. Yeah, Hope creates survivors. And the survivors invest in other people who yes. need the leg up or who need a voice. Yeah. yeah. So don't ever diminish the power of a hopeful soul because it will survive. Yeah. I love that. And you did such a wonderful job of going back home as well, right? Mm -hmm. So many times in these developing nations, and it's not just countries in Africa, but it's, you know, India, Pakistan, you have this brain drain, Mm -hmm. right? Where the smartest and the top leave and are attracted to America in a very strategic way. We attract these individuals here and then they never go back, right? Or they don't even help, right? And so it's so good of you to be able to say, here's the privilege that I have Mm -hmm. and here's I'm going to help my home community. Yeah, It's, it's a West to be part of the elite society, which we are, part of the elite society as diasporic communities, and to then ignore the conditions that give birth to you. That is such a waste. And for my investors, you know, the man that gave me the scholarship to go to school in the U.S., he didn't tell me, Derek, I'm giving you the scholarship because I expect you to be. Right. No, he's watching me to see how am I going to use that school that I went to costs $56,000 a year. Wow. Can you imagine if somebody gave you $56,000 every year and didn't ask for anything? Just give it, you're not his child, you're not his relative. Mm. He just gave it to you. And for you to turn around and don't do anything to symbolize the effort and the work behind that gift is a total disregard and humiliation of that person who is an investor in your life. So when I look at parents who have invested in their kids and the kids who turn around and become reprobates and become mm. plembian and, you know, disregard the investment of the parents or the investment of their pastors or their friends, you're telling us you're not worth the cause. And I don't believe that's true. 
So I think that my job is on several levels to really help people understand that a human being can make mistakes, a human being can be frail, can be vulnerable. All those things don't amount to disaster. They amount to lessons. And if you can organize those lessons in such a way that you can then create good, then that kind of product is so valuable, I can't put a price on it. So that's what I want to be in life. I want to be the symbol of what the investment looks like in a child. When you give a child a chance, we are giving people chances, but they're not using those chances to do the remarkable work they're supposed to do. Yeah. So I look at all the events that happen in my life, and Monia, you and I talked about this at some point, that successful people are those that take events, both good and bad, in their lives, organize those events in a very, very intentional way to then create a service, a product that is valuable in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. And really, you know, you've done so much with your life here as well, right? So keeping with our theme of full circle, Mm -hmm. fast forward a little bit, you've Mm -hmm. become, you know, the past CEO of the National Center Mm -hmm. for Civil and Human Rights. Yes. And for those of you who may not be familiar with this space, it's in the heart of the city, close to Olympic Park, which held the 96 Olympics, and is really a symbol of hope Mm -hmm. for a lot of people around the nation as well. Mm -hmm. And the main floor is about civil rights, but the top floor is about human rights. Correct. And in that top floor, if I'm not mistaken, there are a lot of dictators. Yes. And is Idi Amin one of those? He stands tall and mighty. And what a reminder to have to see him daily. Yeah. When the center called and gave me the CEO position. It was Atlanta finally handing over this incredible burden because Atlanta was the home of the civil rights movement. That's where things all began. Atlanta bore a big chunk of that burden in the sacrifice that Martin Luther King paid. And by giving it to a a young African man to run it is like saying, you know, the civil rights movement and the human rights movement Mm. is now owned by all of us. All of us have a, a role to play. And that was such a gift. That job was one of the most remarkable jobs I've ever held. And to see children come in every day and for me to inspire them about yeah. self-worth and why you should value another human being, why oppression never works in the end, why disabusing people of their rights never works. It's bad for the economy. It's bad for society. It's bad for political life. It's bad all around. And to see these kids look at me and tears rolling down their eyes and saying, wow, so you survived a war? And yeah. I'm like, yeah, you guys are going to have lunch today. <laughs> you're going to have clean water. You're going to have uh, teachers. You're going to have... I never saw... F- my first experience with a library, a full-blown library, was wow. when I came to the U.S. So you guys have all the tools to be successful. You don't have any pretext to let anyone of us think that you are not enabled. Mm. So it was a beautiful, beautiful job. So CEO, CNN hero, entrepreneur, nonprofit starter, what are you working on now? I would have to make you sign an NDA. Oh, okay. (laughs) But I'll give you a hint. Let me me rephrase it. Is there there anything you would like to let our listeners know about that they can help you with? Well, what I'm working on right now is uh, an incredible platform that we are building that looks at this idea of recharge. There are 153 million Americans working in the country today. Of that number, 70 million of them don't take vacation. And what does that mean in a larger scale of things? It means that Americans are overworked and therefore with overwork comes what? Stress, depression, anxiety, poor eating. It becomes an unhealthy lifestyle. Yeah, you have a BMW. Yeah, you have a big house. But are you healthy? And the answer is no, you're not. 
That's a strain on the healthcare system, yeah. and you're essentially leaving money that's on the table. Yeah, that vacation, For, those days are yeah. part of your salary. Yeah, and so what we're looking at is how do we turn Americans into a much more restful culture? How do we turn them into a culture that respects people's space to rest? Because overworking doesn't mean you're productive. Being hoodwinked into leaving your vacation on the table because you're trying to make partner at a farm doesn't make you a better human being than anybody who takes vacation. So this idea of the number of pharmaceuticals we're using to keep aboard the ship that is moving so fast is ridiculous. So my job now is turned to the American worker because as a CEO, I know how hard people work. I have the luxury to go for vacation. Not everybody in my staff went for vacation. One, they can't afford it is what they use as a premise. Two, they fear to be fired. If I take vacation, Mm. I may be fired. Three, they don't know how to plan vacations. Yeah, we don't. Which is funny that you say the firing part. It didn't happen at this company, but there's another woman who works in this industry who... Uh, works for another company. It's part of a community I'm a part of. She said she went on vacation and came back and had been let go. Yeah. And then others were commenting in the thread that it happened to them as well. So I don't know if they were let go because of the vacation or they were just waiting on the timing because the employer didn't want to ruin the vacation. But it's a fear that's not entirely unfounded. So that's the culture we have created in our corporate world. And the only thing we see as a reverse is people say, oh, for us to really keep you interested in your job, we're going to buy you a ping pong table. Right. Uh, No. Create a culture of respect around your fellow human beings so that work becomes a form of worship, not a Mm. form of disaster. In my culture, we go to work as a form of worship because we are giving back to the gods our skills and talents and creating things that we can admire. But that process does not involve me being on medicine to keep aboard, me being fired because I took rest. So that's what I'm working on right now. You'll be seeing a very beautiful platform coming soon. I'm very interested to see this. Because the way America thinks about vacation is so different. I mean, if you think about it, most standard, you get two weeks of vacation Mm -hmm. out of 52, Mm -hmm. not counting like religious holidays or sick days. Mm -hmm. But countries, especially in Europe, the way they treat vacation is so different. There's so much more of it. It's really a thing. People traveled the world on their vacations. When I um, was traveling in Argentina, mm-hmm. I met so many people from abroad who stacked all their vacations together yeah, and traveled for a month there are around people, the globe. There are people in the States who have never left their own yeah. state. This is in a country that has a per capita income of $20,000 or more. And you're looking at Europeans who don't make as much money. And Europeans will tell you, yeah, I've been to Germany. I've been yeah. to England. I've been to Italy. I've been to Africa. I've been... How much do you make? Well, you know, I don't make enough, but I wait tables. They take vacation seriously. Mm-hmm. Even the employers take vacation seriously. They prioritize it. Yeah. And like you said, you know, in America, we really have this culture that I always talk about of living to work Correct. instead of working to live. Yes. You know, we focus and give our prime hours, our prime days, our prime life mm-hmm. to work mm-hmm. to then in turn supposedly have a better life that we never get to enjoy because we're too busy working. Yeah, you're not here to spend your whole life working in a machine factory somewhere. You know, life is too short, trust me. And there's a correlation, if I'm not mistaken, of countries and nations that are the happiest with Mm -hmm. the amount of vacation that they take as well, right? Yes, yes. The happiest country is not the U.S. Right. I can guarantee you that. But I think that it speaks to a larger problem because it all ties into minimum wage. If you're working an hourly employee, Mm, you have to make ends meet. And not only is not spending money on a vacation possible, like a thing you can do, but... If you miss those hours, you've also lost out on that cash as well. I remember 
my first job out of college where I wasn't like a fellow or paid intern was hourly. And I didn't take sick days because I knew that would mean I lost out on all that money and I needed that money to pay rent. But do you know that you can take vacation for $200? You can actually go and take vacation for $200. You can move from Atlanta and go to Hilton Head and spend a day or two Mm. there and be quiet and meditate about your life. This idea of creating a culture that reads self-help books is really telling you that we are so badly off. We need somebody to tell us (laughs) the the seven ways of highly effective people. And then we don't even follow those ways. (laughs) We we just read read them. I tell people the best self-help book you can ever have is good relationships. Mm. Having a good mom, having a good dad. That's the best self-help book I ever read. My mom. Having good wives and good husbands and having good friends, and that's the best. You will never go wrong with a good friend who tells you, I did that, it did not work. Yeah. Try this. So speaking of self, you reminded me of you actually have a self method yes. that you use as part of your success. Talk to us a little bit about that. So when I was thinking about my life in introspection, I took a two-week time away from everything and went into my own retreat. And in the retreat, I asked myself, questions and they always kept on saying it's my fault it's it all starts with me it begins with me it ends with me and i realized i can't assign any of my role in this world to anybody else oscar wilde in fact says it don't try to be other people because everybody is taken taken, that's a great quote yeah so i said to myself derek you need to create a motto for your life that you can go by and live by and i turned the word self into an acronym and S is for service. A human being, a productive, good human being serves his or her community in fairness. If there's a disaster happening somewhere, go serve. But I realize that in service, it sounds like a little nice soft thing to do. But most people who serve actually get educated on the issues and the problems, that yak factor. Mm. They get to understand the yak factor. And they come up with ideas. That education of service gives you ideas. And out of those ideas, you become expert on those ideas, and that gives you the leadership part, the L. So it's service, education, then leadership. Leaders are born out of service and out of educating themselves through that service. They're not born in hospital. And then you go pick up one and say, okay, this is your new leader. No. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So I tell people, if you want to be a leader, serve first. Educate yourself Mm. on the yak part. Be a credible, what, investor in your community. That's how your leadership is born. But then I also talk about the F part, which is having faith in in yourself to do remarkable things. Most people I've found don't have faith in themselves. They actually rely on others, people's compliments. They rely on, you know, people's motivation. We all want to go hear a motivation speaker, and I'm one. But I tell people at the end of the day, my motivation speech will die away into the wind. Mm. But what stays and what is constant is do you have faith in who you are? Do you feel like you can actually go out there and do remarkable things, regardless of whether you're going to fail or succeed? Do you have faith in who you are? So that's service. That's education. That's leadership. That's faith. That's self. It all begins and ends with you. I love that. So not only have you been through unspeakable horrors, a civil war in Uganda, a refugee in Kenya, but the true ridiculous story is about you taking some of the lowest moments of your life turning them into opportunities, Mm -hmm. turning them into action, and serving the world. Yeah, and it's a very painful thing to do, to sort of give up on the selfish notion of who you are to then become selfless. That's a very high cost to pay. 
being noble, being a hero, being great is not cheap. That's one of the most expensive things you can do. That's so true. Which is why most people don't do anything because it's expensive. It's a way on family relationships. It's a way on business. It's a way. So I usually say that success has a cousin, a close cousin called failure. And failure guards her cousin's success (laughs) very, very (laughs) rigorously. For you to open the gates of success, you have to talk to failure and have a close relationship with your failures. So I failed a lot, but I realized that I am quoting two people, success and failure, and I have to go through the gates of failure to actually get to Mm. that high echelon where success resides. So for those of you who really want to do remarkable things, who are called to do remarkable things, and you're in the middle of that grind, that's what it takes. If you're not failing, if you're not up at night thinking, good God, what did I get myself into? And you're sleeping like Cinderella, we have a problem. You're not going to get there. So I tell people, when you see these people that are successful, pay respect. It's very tough to be successful. And to stay successful is even harder. Mm. <laughs> but failing is easy. I can decide to fail tomorrow. And that doesn't take me a day to just give up everything. So my friends that surround me have realized that there's a particular level of excellence that has to be happening around me for them to really be my good friends. Because if you surround yourself with mediocrity, it will give you the very wonderful product of something mediocratic. Mm -hmm. And we don't really care for mediocrity as human beings. We just don't do well with that. You are the average of the people that Mm. you keep. Yeah. Yeah, you really are. So if you want to do something remarkable, which most people want to. I hear people telling me all the time, I want to do what you do. And I say, do you really want to do what I do? <laughs> Are you ready for it? And they say, hey, I want to be successful. And I say to them, oh, don't even talk about success yet. Talk about you first. Yeah. Where are you in your journey? Because you're inviting this powerful notion of doing noble work. So be careful what you ask for. Derek, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. I, mm. I think I'm inspired. Absolutely. So now I gotta go think about that self and <laughs> what I'm gonna do with it. But thank you for sharing your story. You guys have been the best, and everybody keep a positive mind, do good work, and remember to stay in justice. Thanks for listening to Real Tall Tales. Coming up on next week's Real Tall Tales. At the age of 14, our next guest dropped out of high school and joined a gang for protection with the street name Bread. By the age of 16, he had his own gang. In the next episode of Real Tall Tales, we'll talk to lawyer and recidivism activist David Lee Windicher about being arrested 13 times, why he joined a gang so young, and what he's doing now to fight for those who don't have the resources to pay for justice. Thanks for joining us today. If you have a minute, will you give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? Check out the show's socials. That's at the Tall Tales Pod on Twitter and at Real Tall Tales Pod on Instagram for more on our guests.